On January 8, 1993, the owners of a Brown's Chicken restaurant in Palatine, Illinois, and five of their employees were gunned down shortly after close. Though DNA and palm prints were left at the scene, the case soon grew cold. Then, nearly nine years after the massacre, two women came forward to point the finger at two men. Both men confessed, but now claim they're innocent. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Tonight's case is one that Lori recommended back when we were doing Insight. I took those case suggestions over with me, plus I'm adding the new ones that keep getting sent in, and let me tell you, my list is growing. This case, the Browns Chicken Massacre, is a lot bigger than I originally expected. My researcher Haley did an amazing job gathering information from a variety of sources, but because this case is so big, it's going to be a two-parter. If you finish this episode and you cannot wait a week for the next part, it will be on Himalaya Plus and Patreon at the $3 level and up pretty much as soon as you finish listening to this. So let's talk a little bit about the Brown's Chicken Restaurant. It is a restaurant that's based in the Chicago area. It is a fast food chain type restaurant, but you would think of it more as a local chain. It never really spread much out of the Chicago, Illinois, Indiana area. It started in 1949, basically in a trailer, and that was the only location for nine years. Then someone came around and wanted to open a location in Elmhurst, which is about 30 minutes away. When that location took off, other people started coming around wanting to get in on this. And this is how this restaurant grew. A lot of companies are like this. You know, if you go to a McDonald's, anywhere you go, you get the same experience. But the actual McDonald's you're at is owned and run by some local franchisee. And of course, this isn't just a fast food thing. Planet Fitness, UPS stores, even some chain hotels are run the same way. They're national brands, but run by local business owners. At the height of Brown's Chicken in the later 1980s, there were 100 locations. Today, they have around 20 locations. There are a number of reasons for this. But in the spring of 1992, we're at the height of Brown's Chicken. And that's when Richard and Lynn Ellenfeld decided they were going to open a franchise in Palatine, Illinois. This is a suburb of Chicago to the northwest. At the time, it had about 40,000 people. So we're talking an average mid-sized town. I think officially it's classified as a village, but it's just your average mid-sized Midwestern town. Richard had grown up in a small Wisconsin town where his father was even the mayor for a time. Lynn also grew up in Wisconsin. Her family was also civically minded, with her father being a judge. Both families were devout Methodists as well, so it's really no surprise that the two hit it off when they met. 
They were students at the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and they met when they both were volunteering to start a supper club for other Methodists on the campus. In 1964, when Richard was 22 and Lynn was 21, the two married. They had done something that may have surprised a few people who knew them. They went to Dubuque, Iowa, and eloped. Dubuque is just over the Wisconsin-Iowa border, and my guess is it's because Iowa has a shorter waiting period between getting a marriage license and getting married than Wisconsin does. So it's not a unpopular place to go elope to if you don't want to wait Wisconsin's six-day waiting period. But that the two had run off to elope like this also sort of fits. While they were really level-headed people, they were also gregarious people who went out and did stuff. They didn't talk about doing stuff. They made a plan, and then they did it. Just from reading about them, I can imagine them deciding to get married and then following the straightest path to the wedding. After marriage, Richard enrolled in seminary in Boston, Massachusetts. He hoped to enter the ministry, but his path veered when he took a volunteer position working on George McGovern's campaign. McGovern was a progressive anti-war politician, and Richard's views on peace, on caring for the vulnerable, aligned with this. And he started to see a future in the political sphere, not as much as a politician, but someone in the field. And he saw political activism as a way to make a real difference in the world. Lynn was on the same page. She was working in social services pretty much the whole time they were in Massachusetts. Together, they ran a halfway house in Dorchester that helped women who were leaving the prison at Framingham. They really wanted to help the women move away from the institutional thinking of prison, as well as whatever in their lives led them to the prison to begin with. They wanted to help them live happy lives in society. The couple decided to move back to Wisconsin in 1976, and at that point, Richard had been working as McGovern's press secretary. The couple had three daughters, all stair-stepped, being born every two years. Lynn decided to stay home with them while Richard worked in state government. After about three years, Richard took a job that had better hours than working on campaigns and government projects and those late nights in the office. He moved to be a government liaison for a private company. When the company relocated to Chicago, Richard and the family followed. So the 1980s were spent raising their girls in the Chicago area until... Richard was laid off in 1989. Lynn picked up some odd jobs while Richard looked for work, but it was not going well. He just wasn't finding anything. But other things had changed, mostly that their kids were pretty grown at this point. They were in their late teens, early 20s. Richard had left a career that had him gone long hours when they were little, But now that they were older, 
he and Lynn were prepared to take on a new career path that would demand those long hours again. That was time they weren't willing to sacrifice when their girls were little, but now that they're mostly grown, it seemed like something they could do. According to a Chicago Tribune article in 1993, it was typical in this time frame for out-of-work executives to become franchise owners. And that's what Richard started looking into. This article said one-fourth of new franchise applications were from previous executives. This seemed to be a path many were taking. And Richard eventually landed on Brown's Chicken as the best fit for them. It cost $300,000 to get started in a Brown's Chicken franchise at the time. And that was pretty much everything you would need to get the restaurant started. But that was also pretty much everything they had. That was their savings, that was their retirement accounts, the whole nine yards. Running a restaurant, a business like this, was never the couple's dream job. This was a means to an end. Finding a job for income didn't work, so they were trying something else. They were taking this on as an investment. They opened the Brown's Chicken franchise in Palatine, Illinois, in the spring of 1992. Richard was 49 years old and Lynn was 48. They knew it was going to require ridiculous hours to get started, but a lot of franchise owners can later take a giant step back from the day-to-day operations once they get the restaurant running and the right people in there to run it. That was the dream. The restaurant was open for 16 hours a day, and Richard or Lynn or both were at the restaurant all of those 16 hours. They were building a work crew they could depend on, and on the evening of January 8, 1993, They were at the restaurant, and five of these hardworking employees were there as well. We're talking nine to ten months after the restaurant had opened. What we know about the crew working that night largely comes from some very moving and detailed biographies published by the Daily Herald in their series titled 44 Minutes in January. All of the sources will be on the website, but I will link to this full series in the show notes so it'll be a lot easier to find in your podcatcher. Michael Castro had been working there probably the longest. He was only a part-time employee because he was still in high school. He was only 16 years old. He was a hard worker. He was really dedicated to his family and to the church. He was also a well-rounded kid. He played video games and classical piano with equal enthusiasm. He sometimes worked as a dishwasher. Sometimes he worked as a cashier. He really did whatever Richard and Lynn needed him to do. He was that kind of kid. You could give him a task and it'll be done. He planned to take this focus straight to the Marine Corps when he graduated high school. Michael had put in a good word with Richard and Lynn about another young man working that night, Rico Solis. And Rico was about to turn 18, 
He was still in high school. That's how he and Michael became friends. But Rico had really been through some stuff already. He was born in the Philippines, and his father was murdered when he was 12. His mother remarried in 1987, which was not even a year after his father died, and she moved to the United States. But she left Rico and his sisters in the Philippines to be raised by their grandfather until she could bring them over. Rico, as young as he was himself, he stepped into a caretaking role for his little sisters. In May 1992, he came to the United States to live with his mother and stepfather, and that's how he met Michael Castro when he enrolled at school. Enrico needed a job because he had some goals. He saw the U.S. as a place of opportunity, and he wanted two things. He wanted a fast car, and he wanted to enlist in the military. He managed to buy a Dodge Charger. It was probably six or seven years old. But he had to wait until he was 18 and graduated high school to hit his second goal of enlisting in the Army. The other three employees there that night were much newer. Both Thomas Menes and Marcus Nelson had only been working there for about two months. Thomas was 32 years old and a peace-loving, gentle person. He liked to go hunting, but he never actually killed anything. He liked going into the woods and just sitting and watching and observing. He also liked bowling, playing darts, watching TV. His brother said he could fit his earthly possessions into the trunk of a car. He just liked things simple. Marcus Nelson, who had also started at Brown's in the same time period, November 1992, he was 31 years old. He was a divorced Navy veteran, and he and his ex-wife had a seven-year-old daughter together. She was the love of his life. His brother told the Daily Herald that even when Marcus struggled financially, he always sent above the mandatory child support payment to make sure his daughter had everything that he could provide for her. And that was even when his own dinner was a can of tuna, because that's all he could afford. When he was in the Navy, he was a cook, so it seemed like a logical career choice after he got out. And he saw a career path at Brown's Chicken, and it sounds like Richard and Lynn definitely saw the potential there because in spite of not being on the job long, he was already scheduled to take a management training seminar the day after the murders. The fifth employee on duty on January 8th, 1993, was 47-year-old Guadalupe Maldonado, and he had only been there a few weeks. Guadalupe was from Mexico, and he had come to the U.S. to work as a cook twice before this time. What he would do is he'd come to the U.S. with his family, he'd work a ton, save up his money, and then they would go back to Mexico for a while. This was the best way he could support them. His wife, Beatrice, said that he lived for their family, which included three sons, ages 13, 11, and 5. His life was all about providing for them. He had a restaurant that he usually worked at the two previous times he worked in the U.S., but when he got to Chicago, that job 
wouldn't be open for a few more months. So he started at Brown's instead. It was a Friday night, January 8th, 1993. The restaurant closed at 9 p.m. 16-year-old Michael Castro's mother, Epifania, was up and waiting for him to come home after a shift. It took a little while for the crew to close up, sweeping floors, wiping tables, getting the trash out, all of that. But Michael always came straight home after work, so she expected him to be home by 10 at the latest. It didn't take more than an hour for them to close up. So at 11 p.m., when Michael hadn't arrived home, Epifania woke up his dad, Manny, because she was worried Michael wasn't home yet. So Manny got in the car, headed over to Brown's to see what was going on. Maybe it was just taking longer than normal to close. Maybe Michael had car trouble. You don't know. Manny made it to Brown's without seeing Michael broken down on the side of the road. And when he got there, he noticed Michael's car was still in the parking lot. There were actually a few cars still in the parking lot at this point. This is two hours after close, but the restaurant looked closed. All the lights were off except for one directly above the counter. Nobody was visibly inside the building when he looked through the windows. So assuming maybe they were all in the back, Manny banged on the door, but no one showed up. Okay, so Manny went to the restaurant, banged on the door, didn't get an answer. So he headed home, and Epifania joined Manny in looking for Michael. They went to places they knew he liked to hang out. They went to friends' houses. They thought maybe a friend picked him up at work, and they went somewhere, though it was not like Michael to do that without telling them. As the mom of teens, I can say that I would actually be more likely to be home stewing about how inconsiderate they were not to tell me where they were going. I mean, now it's 2019. I have GPS Life 360 app on my phone. I can see where they are and then stew about it. But I can imagine pre-cell phone parenting. I would have just kind of been pissy about it. Epifania and Manny had to have known Something was wrong, whether we're talking a gut feeling like people talk about or just knowing that Michael wouldn't have gone out without calling home first. I don't know, but he is like an hour late and they're literally searching for him. 1 a.m. rolls around, which is the point where I would probably be pretty worried. They still have no sign of Michael and they decide they're calling the police. But the police dispatcher they talked to said they're not going to take a missing persons report until he had been missing for 24 hours. This reminds me what a blessing the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children is here in the U.S. Michael was a minor. He was 16. Today, he would be entered into the NCIC immediately with no waiting period, or at least he should be if the police department was following guidelines. Even if they thought he was a runaway, a missing persons report would be taken 
immediately. And whenever I do these older cases, I realize how much the National Center has done for children and families. Anyway, Manny's not pleased with this non-response, and he was understandably upset about it. He asked if there was anything the police could do for them, and he was told the police would keep an eye out for Michael as they patrolled. They would call the family if they spotted him. Manny told the dispatcher that Michael's car, his way to get around, was still at Brown's, and the police agreed they would send an officer out to the restaurant to check on things. So Manny and Epifania met him there at 1.30. They are not dropping this. The officer had to look around, saw nothing suspicious, and said maybe Michael was out with friends or maybe he was even already home. So they went back home, and of course, Michael wasn't there. So they called the police again. And at this point, they're pretty frantic. Meanwhile, as Manny and Epifania are searching and calling the police, an officer on patrol, Ronald Conley, saw a man peering into the windows at the Brown's Chicken Restaurant. He pulled into the parking lot and asked the man what he was doing. Obviously, this seems suspicious. But it was Pedro Maldonado, Guadalupe's brother. Guadalupe had also not made it home. His wife was frantic, and Pedro was out looking for him. He got a rather similar, he's probably off with friends, response, even though Pedro pointed out his car was still there in the parking lot. So this next time Manny called the police, the dispatcher sent Ronald Conley, the officer who talked to Guadalupe's brother, over to their house. So now Conley has heard from two employees' families that the employees did not come home and that they were worried. He arrived at the Castro house around 2 a.m. He did the we'll keep an eye out thing initially. But I think it's easier to say that to two parents who were on the phone, like the dispatcher did. But while Connolly was sitting there in their house, looking at how absolutely distraught they were, he couldn't do it. So he said, all right, let's go check out the restaurant. So he got in his patrol car. Manny and Epifania drove over with their car. And we're at about 3 a.m. And they're back at the Browns restaurant. Conley tried the doors until he found an employee entrance that was unlocked. He opened it and flicked the beam of his flashlight into the entrance. And Manny immediately saw Michael's jacket. So he started to walk inside. Thankfully, Connolly was able to stop him from going in. Connolly noticed there was a mop, and the mop was bloody. And he also noticed there was an arm sticking out of a door. And so he called for backup. Manny and Epifania's very frantic night is about to get so much worse, as bad as it can get. The next officer on the scene was named Saxma, and the two then entered the building tactically. They don't know what they're going to find in there, so they have their guns drawn. Once inside, Connolly headed to the door where he saw the arm laying, poking out. 
and this turned out to be a large freezer on the east side of the building. On account of the arm blocking the way, the door hadn't been able to be completely closed. When Connolly opened the freezer, he saw that the arm belonged to Lynn Ellenfelt. Also in the freezer were the bodies of Guadalupe, Rico, Michael, and Marcus. All five had been shot to death, but some of them actually had other injuries as well. Lynn had a giant gash across her throat, and Michael had been stabbed in the abdomen. Marcus, who, if you remember, was a Navy veteran, also had an injury to his head. If you're thinking what I'm thinking, we're already looking at more than one killer. While it's hard for one person with a gun to overcome five people, it is possible. But one killer with a gun trained on the group to control them isn't also going to be wielding a knife in his free hand, slitting throats and stabbing people. That's too much. That's not something you can keep control over. So we are looking at at least two people behind this. A third officer arrived and joined the search of the rest of the restaurant, and it was in a large cooler on the west side of the restaurant that they found the two other bodies, Richard and Thomas. They had also been shot to death. So this is all seven people working that night. All the victims had been shot, and some of the victims had injuries to their hands, which led investigators to believe that at some point they knew what was coming and put their hands up to shield themselves. So now we have a fourth officer arriving. This is Sergeant Robert Jacobson. He put grocery bags over his shoes in an attempt to preserve the crime scene when he entered the freezer and the cooler to move the bodies out. But this scene was brutal. It is as bad or worse than anything you've seen in the goriest movie you've seen. The bags ended up filling with blood, and he left his footprints in the freezer. These footprints were not recorded so that they could be excluded from the crime scene analysis, and he threw the shoes away, which I get. They were covered in blood from a crime scene, but they shouldn't have been thrown away. They should have been preserved with the rest of the evidence. So now we can't even have a retrospective analysis done of the crime scene since the shoes are in the landfill somewhere. As you can imagine, this will become an issue later. Also, in case you thought I forgot about the Castros, they're actually still standing outside. The police are not letting them in. They're not telling them anything. More police officers keep showing up. Eventually, they're told to go to the police station, and that's when they learned Michael was found dead with his coworkers. Meanwhile, the Ellenfelt family is growing concerned. Their daughter, Dana, was in college, but she was home for the holidays. She had been out and got home around 3.30 in the morning. She noticed her parents weren't home. Assuming they were still at the restaurant for some reason, she called over there, but there was no answer. So she and her grandmother, who was also visiting for the holidays, drove to the restaurant and saw the police at the scene. Can just imagine their hearts dropping in this moment. 
Unlike the Castros, though, they were told at the scene what had happened. Dana called her boyfriend, and his father was kind enough to take on the horrible task of getting in touch with the two other daughters so that Dana wouldn't have to. As the investigation is getting going over the next few days, the families are having to bury their loved ones. Richard and Lynn's funerals were held at the United Methodist Church in Columbus, Wisconsin, close to their families. Guadalupe's funeral was held with his family in Palatine, but then his body was sent home to Mexico to be laid to rest. Marcus Nelson, being a Navy veteran, was given a 21-gun salute. And the other three, Thomas Menes and the two teenagers, Rico Solis and Michael Castro, they all had local funerals as well. Many family members didn't feel like their concerns were heard that night. And they question whether or not the police did what they needed to do. Two of the employees' family spoke with police and expressed concern. The first call was at 11 p.m., but no one checked the building until 3 a.m. It's easy to Monday morning quarterback, but it's hard to imagine a scenario where this didn't seem a little fishy. Everyone working that night left their cars in the parking lot for hours after close. Two people who always went straight home after work seemed to both go and hang out with friends that night, not taking their cars with them. And it's unlikely this 47-year-old father of three was going somewhere with the 16-year-old high school student. So what if they entered the building at 11? What if they checked that door? I do see where the families are coming from with this, and I definitely can understand their frustration over the what-ifs. But we really can't look back at this point just forward because we have a mass murder, seven people ages 16 to 50, and there is no clue, and police have no idea who did it. So the investigation launches, and it is aggressive from this point on. A task force was assembled, and they named it the Browns Chicken Task Force. It always seems like they have names like Operation Falcon, but not this time. They just went straight for accuracy, Brown's Chicken Task Force. The Palatine Police Department invited the FBI to participate. Neighboring police departments had officers assigned to the task force as well. So when they started this task force, they had 90 dedicated investigators working double shifts. The motive here was pretty obvious. It was a robbery. A decent amount of cash was taken. Reports vary, but it was around $1,200, which would be about $2,100 today. If you're thinking that's not enough money to kill seven people for, you're completely right because murder is not going to make sense to us. It just won't. There was plenty of forensic evidence collected at the scene. Fibers, hairs, blood, fingerprints. But here's the thing. This building was open to the public. They collected 200 fingerprints. 200. 
that's enough to render most of them useless unless they were found in blood or somehow very obviously linked to the crime and not just to the restaurant. So how do they even begin to narrow down what evidence is relevant to the crime and what is just people coming and going from a restaurant? The timing helped here. The employees were already closing up. The trash cans were all empty except for one, and this one didn't have very much in it. It had the remnants of a four-piece chicken meal, a paper cup, a coffee stir stick, and some napkins. The cash register does back this up. We know the restaurant closed at 9, but there was a sale at 9.08 for a four-piece chicken meal. So it seems like they were in the middle of closing. They had emptied the trash cans. Someone came in just around close. Instead of turning them away, they went ahead and served the chicken meal, and then they went about finishing up their closing routine while this person ate. And investigators were leaning towards this late customer being the killer. So they collected this trash for forensic examination. Everything was bagged separately initially, but the food ended up being put in the same bag at some point. And six days after the murders, the evidence was being processed. While processing the napkins, Dr. Jane Homeyer put them in a solution that would make latent fingerprints visible. So again, latent fingerprints are the ones you can't necessarily see. They're not in a thing of blood or in a thing of paint. They're just left behind largely due to the oils in your skin. So Dr. Homeyer had some pretty solid hope that someone eating fried chicken would have left some kind of greasy print behind. And this paid off. One print was found on the napkin and it was photographed. She tried again about a week later to see if anything else would come from these napkins, but she got nothing else. This was the print they had. And the chicken was saved because there was some hope that they may be able to test it for DNA. If you're eating chicken and you're not using a knife and fork, you're putting your mouth on it. That may leave behind saliva skin cells from the inside of your mouth, skin cells from your fingers, and there may be some luck here in getting a DNA hit. On January 9th, the day after the crime, the Chicago Tribune released an article outlying the believed sequence of events. There was a similar article that was slightly different in the Orlando Sentinel a week later, so I've taken both accounts and mushed them together. So here is what investigators initially believed happened. After the restaurant was closed, two or more people came in, likely through the unlocked employee access door. They corralled the employees and demanded money. It's possible Richard and Thomas were already in the cooler when the robbery started. Perhaps they were working in there, putting things away or inventorying for the next day, and they didn't hear what was happening. That would explain why they were found separated 
from the rest. But it seems like they became aware a robbery was taking place at some point because Richard's credit card and Thomas's watch were found inside a box in that cooler, like they had hid valuables from robbers. Of course, it is possible they were corralled and held in there, and they hid their stuff while waiting on the robbers to leave, not realizing that this was not going to be an ordinary holdup. The other four employees were corralled into the freezer, and Lynn was forced to open the company safe. This safe had two sections. The top was for petty cash, and the bottom was for bank deposits. They were only able to get the top section open, likely because Lynn opened it for them. And this is the part that held the $1,200. There was more money in the bottom part of the safe, but it was never opened. The theory is that Lynn couldn't open it. Not that she wouldn't. She never would have put money ahead of human lives, but that she fumbled in the moment. We don't know who, if anyone, had already been shot. The robbers have a gun. They have a knife. This is a lot of stress, and she may not have been able to open it on the first try. Whoever was holding the knife flipped out, panicked, whatever. At this point, he cut her across her throat. At some point, Michael and Marcus didn't comply or they attempted to overtake the robbers. This comes from their wounds. Michael had been stabbed and Marcus hit on the head. It's believed they had these injuries either because they resisted going into the freezer or they attempted to fight back, possibly trying to protect Lynn. With her serious neck wound, Lynn was then put in the freezer with the others, and then 12 rounds were fired into the freezer, killing everybody inside. An additional five shots were fired into the cooler where Richard and Thomas were. At this point in the investigation, it's not clear which group was shot first, the cooler or the freezer, but we do know they weren't shot at the same time because all of the bullets came from the same gun. The robbers, who are now murderers, used the mop to clean up any blood they stepped in to avoid leaving behind their tracks. On the way out, they cut the power, which only left one light on, and this gave the appearance from the outside that the store was simply closed. Whereas if they left all the lights on and it was 11 midnight, that would have alerted people to something being wrong earlier. The clock was powered by the electricity and it stopped at 9.52 p.m. This was 44 minutes after the chicken dinner was rung up. The robbers would have fled at this point and the FBI believed the murder part of this crime may not have been planned in advance, but they brought a loaded gun, they brought plenty of ammunition, and they brought a knife. So they definitely saw this as a possible ending to the robbery, but robbery was believed to be the primary motive. From a legal standpoint, premeditation means very little here. In the vast majority of states in the U.S., Illinois included, 
a non-premeditated murder that occurs during the commission of a felony is still first-degree murder. And at the time, Illinois was a death penalty state. It isn't anymore. They abolished it in 2011, I think. But at the time, whoever committed this crime was looking at the death penalty. Two and a half weeks after the massacre, on January 25th, a $100,000 reward fund was announced. One of the donors to the fund was Palatine Police Chief Jerry Bratcher himself. In February, a billboard was put up letting people know that there was such a big reward out there. They really wanted to motivate people to send in tips. And tips did come in and a number of people were questioned. Some were from before the announcement of the reward and some were after. The day after the murders, the first tip came in pointing the finger at a man named Martin Blake. Right after New Year's, so about a week before, Martin had been fired from Brown's. The tipster told the authorities that on the night of the murders, Martin had left a party after 9 p.m. Twelve minutes after this call, they arrested Martin at gunpoint and held him in custody for two days. Eventually, they had to let him go without charge because they had nothing except this tip. He had an alibi. He did leave a party, but he didn't leave it alone. He was with a group of people. They gave him a lie detector, which he took and he passed. He cooperated pretty much completely, even though he was arrested in such a dramatic fashion. And this arrest became problematic for a few reasons. One is that Martin says he asked to speak to an attorney and was denied. The police say he never asked. Someone, probably a family member, did send a lawyer to the police station. And the lawyer said he was not allowed to speak with Martin. And this is actually okay. If Martin never asked for a lawyer, that is. Suspects have the right to ask for a lawyer, but lawyers don't have a right to ask for clients. But Martin said he asked to speak to the lawyer and was denied. And the lawyer was at the police station. This will actually come up again in future interrogations in this case. The second issue with this arrest is that Martin's name was published immediately in the media. Police released it, and not just locally, the Washington Post ran with it. Martin ended up leaving Illinois to get out from under the cloud of suspicion in this case. The third issue is that it looks like Martin was focused in on rather quickly to the point where some other witnesses were not spoken to until after he was released two days later. And we know how quickly short-term memories empty from our brains. So we don't know what little details were gone because they waited two days to talk to these people. And the fourth issue with this arrest is the shaky probable cause they used to hold him for two days. He had been fired from the job, and someone called to say he left a party early. Obviously, all ex-employees need to be questioned, especially any who had been fired. But arrested at gunpoint, held for two days, your name being published nationally, that's a bit much for 
the very thin circumstantial evidence they had against him. And this issue turned out to be a big enough deal that Martin sued for false arrest. In 1997, he was given a settlement for about $100,000 over this. Martin has been completely cleared of any involvement in this crime since pretty early on. Yet, his name still comes up anytime we talk about this case. So let's go to the next notable interview. It was on February 17th, 1993, and it was another ex-employee named Juan Luna. When he came in to be interviewed, a woman named Anne Lockett was with him. Juan's prints were taken and compared to the napkin, and they didn't match. So I called this a notable interview, and I know right now it doesn't sound notable, but we're going to loop back to it. A lot of the people who are questioned didn't give the police anything, didn't lead them anywhere. In spite of how quickly they arrested Martin and how it looked like this was going to be solved quickly, the investigation dragged on. The task force was down to 10 people about a year after the killings, but 10 dedicated police officers on a single case is still a very active case. Any visual you have of someone just putting the evidence on a shelf and walking away, that's not what was going on here. They were still working this case for years actively. The chicken pieces from the trash had been stored in a freezer to preserve them until they could be tested. And in 1995, they were sent to the Chicago Fields Museum. Then in 1998, they were tested again. Because DNA tech is really improving quickly in this time. And they found saliva on two of the five chicken bones. One of the bones produced two DNA profiles, a major profile and a minor profile. They concluded the major one was likely the person who ate the chicken. And the minor one was someone who just touched the chicken, which frankly could have been a lot of people, including those who collected and tested the evidence. When the chicken was at the Field Museum, it was put on a table that wasn't sterilized and it was handled without gloves or masks. So who knows where that second profile came from? While the evidence is being processed, investigators are still interviewing people and following tips. In November 1995, they made contact with a woman named Eileen Bacala and asked her to come in and answer questions. She did, and when she showed up, she had Juan Luna and James Dagorski with her. You'll remember Juan Luna was the ex-employee who had been interviewed before. Eileen told police that on the night of the murder, she was with James and Juan. She had picked them up at a grocery store, and they stayed the night at her house. They all found out about the murders the next day on the news like everybody else did. She had very little to add to the investigation at this point, but she will come up again later. So we're going to move five years down the road. In April 1998, a man named John Simonic was interviewed. He told the police he had nothing to do with anything, but he was becoming front and center in their investigation. He was on their radar. Two months later, 
a friend of his named Todd Wakefield sat for his first of several police interviews. He had been at the restaurant on January 8, 1993. Around 9 p.m., he ordered food, and Michael Castro took his order. When police told him he might have been the last person to eat there, he said he probably was. But he said he got his food, he left, didn't rob anyone, didn't kill anyone. A month after that, in July 1998, John Simonic was pulled in again and interviewed twice in the same day. During the second interview of the day, he admitted that he was at Brown's that night with Todd, but he said he waited in the parking lot. Todd went in to get food, and when he came out, he had money with him. So now police have Todd admitting to being the last person in the restaurant, and now they have his friend saying that he came out of the restaurant with money. So it's not looking very good for Todd here. The interrogator felt like John was holding back, and so he pushed, and he said his story was not adding up. And John pivoted a bit. He said he actually did go in with Todd, but he was in the bathroom when he heard gunshots. He did help Todd steal the money and went back to his house with it, but that was only after Todd had killed everyone. He didn't even see anyone being murdered. He just heard the gunshots. So now we have a confession of sorts. We have someone saying he didn't do it, but he was there. Confessions, though, are nothing without corroboration. So John gave that. He said he fired a shot at the scene, not into a victim, but rather into the pan that was above the deep fryers. And there was a bullet impression in that exact spot. This didn't seem to be something anyone who wasn't there would have known about. After John made these statements, he was not arrested immediately. He was released. They were definitely closing in on John and Todd as the robbers and murderers, but they needed more. There was another person in John and Todd's circle that was interviewed frequently, and that's Todd's girlfriend, Casey Sander. She actually worked at Brown's, and she was interviewed a lot. She told the police about a recurring nightmare she had that she was in the restaurant as an employee and the gunman shot everyone. She would then wake up when he shot her. Investigators seemed to take this dream as maybe her attempt to confess a bit, but this sounds like a pretty typical nightmare under these circumstances. Her co-workers were all gunned down, and even if you're not there, that impacts you. And we need to remember, she was 17 when this happened. We also can't discount survivor's guilt here. She was on the schedule that night. She decided she wanted the night off, and Rico Solis covered her shift. She should have been there, not Rico. And now Rico is dead. Who wouldn't have nightmares after that? On her 10th interview, that's right, 10 interviews, she changes her story a bit. This was in April 1999, so now we are six years past the murders. This time, Casey told investigators that on the night of the murder, Todd picked her up about 6.30 in the evening, 
After nine, they went to Brown's so she could talk to Lynn about her work schedule. She went inside and Todd came in behind her. He was talking to Rico and Michael when he suddenly flipped out over something. He pulled his gun and told them to all get in the back or he'd kill them. When he started shooting, she took off running. She ran all the way home. She said when she got home, quote, they came in behind her. Police asked her who they were, and she said it was just Todd. So now this is sounding a little weird if it was just Todd chasing her for her to then say they. And investigators also said something to her about a bloody footprint at the scene. And she said if it was her shoe size, then it was probably her footprint. It sounds like at this point, she's just agreeing. She's like, oh yeah, bloody footprint, probably mine. She's not really giving a statement anymore. We're going to get into her interrogation in more depth in part two because it does come up again. But Casey does say she was just trying to get home. She was telling them what they wanted to hear so she could go home. And they did let her go home, just like they let John go home. Because let's look at what they have right now. They have two people saying they were there and saw Todd Wakefield kill everyone. But they don't say the other one was there. Casey doesn't put John there. John doesn't put Casey there. But they put themselves there. This is a giant cluster of conflicting statements. But police really felt these were their people. So four months after Casey's statement, John Simonic was arrested on August 5th, 1999. It was just over a year since he had given his statement saying that Todd killed everyone. And at this point, he gives a videotape statement. He said that he and Todd went to Brown's Chicken. Todd ordered food. Five to ten minutes later, Todd pulled his gun and forced five to the freezer while John took two of the employees to the cooler. So, so much for his story about being in the bathroom when it all went down. But John didn't have a gun, and he freaked out when he heard gunshots. He said Todd told him, that he had to kill the two in the cooler after Todd had killed everybody in the freezer. He said he didn't want to, but Todd made him and he was scared of what would happen to him. And then he said one of the two men made it out of the cooler and was not in the cooler when he was shot, and they had moved him in afterwards. He said Todd then stabbed two or three of the people in the freezer. John later gave another confession that changed some of these details in pretty big ways, and eventually, the police had a total of five different versions of what happened, all confessions from John. They ended up releasing him, even though he gave this pretty thorough and detailed confession. The problem was, every version of his confession was thorough and fairly believable, but they can't all be true. Whether investigators thought John and Todd still did it at this point, it's not clear. They were really, really focused on for a while. But then in 2002, nine years after the murders, a tip came in, and it had nothing to do with Todd or John or Casey. And next week, we will discuss the new suspects that come up and the new batch of statements we have implicating them. We have a lot more stories, we have trials, and if you can't wait to hear part two, it's available on Patreon and Himalaya Plus now for everyone at the $3 level and up. 
It will be available to everyone in the lower Patreon tiers on Saturday, which is the usual early release day. And then it'll be in the main feed on Sunday. And trust me, there is a lot more story here. 